It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Whether you're looking for a good Korean skincare or affordable and trendy jewelry, they've got you covered. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. Hey, y'all, and welcome to Trials to Triumphs. I'm Ashley Blaine Featherston Jenkins, but you can call me ABFJ. This week, one of my dearest friends, writer, director, and Dear White People creator, Justin Simeon, talks to me about breaking ground and learning to fill your own cup. This episode is incredibly special to me. Three years ago, Justin and I recorded the pilot episode that would lead to Trials to Triumphs. For this episode, we took a moment to just breathe, take it all in, and celebrate how far we've come over those three short years. As we talked, key lessons that helped each of us evolve in our careers and our relationships emerged, and we got to know each other even more. As Black artists, we're often put into a box and told by the powers that be to work within the limited lanes we're given. But sticking to what's safe hardly ever moves the needle. To truly make an impact, sometimes we're called to step up and stand out. You're breaking ground. That can feel really messy and destructive and chaotic and scary to people. But it's really necessary so that when the next artist comes along, and even if you're that same artist, what you're trying to do is consolidate and make sense of all the broken ground and like sort of bring it all together. With Dear White People, we were breaking ground. We were experimenting. We were looking for something new. And we were trying to figure out what this new sort of streaming thing was about. We were trying to figure out what this like millennial to Gen Z like approach to race was. We, it was a journey, it was a search. It was not like a series of answers. It was a search, that show. Justin is a brilliant artist, a visionary, and in many ways a pioneer in his craft. But at times his vision and creative genius isn't immediately understood. Instead of waiting to be recognized, Justin has learned to take inventory of his accomplishments and celebrate his wins, big and small. I can relate. As creatives working in a changing industry, learning to fill our own cups has truly become our greatest act of self-care. And in our Sankofa moment, Justin reveals the musical legend who's had the biggest impact on him as a creator. His whole thing was about liberation. And it was about like this electric, free, I can do literally anything. I can defy the laws of gravity energy.
Oh my gosh, Justin. Hi, honey. <laughs> okay, I have the craziest thing to tell you. So three years to the day we recorded my pilot for Trials to Triumphs, you and yeah. I. Yeah. It was to the day though, Justin, July 1st. Oh, really? 29th to the day. Yes. That's wild. Isn't that wild? Wow. Wow. That's insane. I mean, I, if I had to say one person who's truly changed my life, probably the most, there's probably two people that have changed my life the most in the past decade. It's you and Daryl, honestly and truly. Wow. Um, wow. And we'll get into all of that. But, but I mean, just I have to say, the reason that I'm sitting here with you doing Trials to Triumphs as OWN's first original podcast is because yes. you said yes first. You were the first person to say yes. And you didn't hesitate then. You didn't hesitate now. And so I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, Justin, for always believing in me. We've obviously talked since July 1st, 2019, but so much has changed in three years. <laughs> well, first of all, we're both. <laughs> I, mean, I know it has. I mean, I has. yes. I mean, first of all, we're both sitting wild. here with wedding rings on first of all we're married oh, yes yes <laughs> we're both yes, married we full-on married now <laughs> like that's a big thing we weren't even engaged then um yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh all the things yeah. so um i want to talk about houston okay what would you say houston has given you mm. i think houston gave me a really global perspective if that like it, it like I grew up in a black neighborhood um and I was bused to what they call magnet schools so I, I sort of like had a sense of um myself within the black community specifically but also within um a very very diverse uh community diverse in many ways race of course uh but also perspective point of view. Um, and so to me, like uh, the idea of being surrounded by people that aren't necessarily like me, um, that might even be challenging for me, um, but finding a way to sort of make all that work mm -hmm. <laughs> as a kid. Um, I was always in different environments as a kid, uh, even, you know, even sort of in my home life. My mom is a, you know, single mother, with a doctorate degree, owned a home in the 70s in Houston, which is pretty remarkable for a woman, uh, especially for a black woman coming out of Louisiana, um, the segregated South, all that good stuff. And so, you know, in order to make sure that I was like safe while she was working, I was always at an aunt's house or, you know, um, part of like a, an after school program. It, my world in Houston was just constant transition, different people, different spaces, a lot of that. Um, and the ability to just kind of hang with maybe the chaos of that, uh, is something that I, I definitely learned. I didn't have any choice really. <laughs> is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. 
Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. What would you say then Los Angeles has given you? You've been here now for how long? Mm, Lord have mercy. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I mean, just a couple of years because I'm really young. Yeah, you're but, like, you just um, turned, what, 22? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It doesn't matter what <laughs> I just turned. Um, <laughs> let me see. We, I've been here since, what, 2005? So that's a minute. That's a minute. Yeah. That's a minute. Um, what has LA taught me? I don't know. I'm still learning. I, I think I just learned to like LA, like relatively recently. Um, it's taught me a lot of things I don't like about it. Like what? <laughs> what don't you like? You know, LA, uh, I've heard it described as a place where you're always at work. And I think that that's true if you're in like the creative industries. Like, I don't think I realized that because when I moved to LA, you know, like you, I'm just in my hustle. I'm just trying to make things happen. And, you know, I think it's probably only recently I've really been able to like sit down and be like, okay, what did I just do? Uh, and, uh, one thing I noticed about LA, it's just very easy to, never stop working, um, to just always be thinking about, talking about, hustling, trying to make something happen, particularly in the film industry, which is where I work. Um, uh, and it's very, you have to be really deliberate about things like taking self-care, time, um, being with friends. It feels so difficult just to see yes, people in LA. I think it's such a car culture. Things are so separate. You really have to sort of carve out space for life, mm -hmm. like non-work specific life, you know, yeah. here. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure if, this is, if that's where I want to be for the rest of my life. So yeah. I have no work-life balance. It has not been figured out or settled at all. Um, but we're working on it. Yeah. It gets better. Listen, I'm working on it too. But what I want to ask you is, what is the most significant change in you? Since 2013, Justin being the director, shooting his first studio feature to now, you have overall deals. You've done a complete series on Netflix. You just shot The Haunted Man. Like you were doing all of the things now. And I know there's so much more that you want to do, but what has been the biggest and most significant change in you since then? I think I'm a lot better at... Um, sitting my fear at the same table with the rest of the voices in my head. I think at that time, mm. my fear was running the show. It was all consuming. My I, fear isn't even the right word, just my terror, my panic that it was all going to end in disaster was always there right underneath my eyeballs. And, you know, a lot of people say I'm very calm under pressure. And I think that that's true. But that's an aspect of me that, like, I'm not conscious of. Like, my face just goes calm <laughs> when stuff starts to get real. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But underneath, though, <laughs> I was a hot mess. <laughs> like, I was, I was trying to keep it together as best I could. And not let anybody see me sweat, but just the sheer panic that everything was going to end in disaster. I saw a meme the other day on Instagram <laughs> that I had to cackle at because it was so real. Talking about how um, 
you know, certain generations don't understand why millennials and Gen Z's are so anxious and depressed, but yet they created a game called perfection where if you did, if you weren't perfect in a set amount of time, the board literally exploded in your face. <laughs> yes, that. That is what was happening behind the, probably is always happening behind the eyes. But I, I think I'm a lot better at acknowledging that panicky voice because you don't, you can't get rid of it. Um, you know, they always say like bravery is not, not, not feeling fear. It's feeling fear and doing it anyway. Um, you don't ever get rid of that feeling, but I am able to sort of put that feeling, that part of me, you know, next to other parts of me that are maybe a little bit more rational, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I'm, a- I'm able to sort of, um, uh, integrate those feelings a little bit better into my process than I was at that time. Uh, at that time they were literally going through my thought, my, my head all the time, just panic, terrible outcomes, just the worst, uh, you know, always looking for danger. Yeah. When did you recognize that that was something you really needed to work on and how did you do it? It was 2014, maybe 2015. It was after Dear White People had come out, after we had found a financier. It was before the show, but, you know, I, I was like doing all right financially, really for the first time. Uh, when we left Sundance, I was broke and we didn't make enough money on the movie for me to really even pay my rent. <laughs> You know, and so like there was a lot of survival that was going on for me in the wake of that movie at Sundance. But then once all of that settled and the movie, you know, had been sold, it was already out on home video. I had the poster up on my wall. I was walking by my own poster and I realized I hadn't felt proud Mm. once Mm. in the journey. And that like, oh, my God, like I used to sit in that closet that I made into my This was my like Koreatown no, it was this miracle. It was one of my little tiny apartments. Um, but I used to sit in a closet that I turned into my office trying to like crank this thing out and figure out how to write this thing. And now the poster of it is hanging on the wall and it has not occurred to me at any point in time in this to feel proud that I accomplished something. And I just realized I had a problem mm-hmm. if, you know, up until this point, the thing I thought was keeping me from being happy was breaking through in the film industry. I had now done that. And I, I, I felt the same. I knew something, I knew some, something wasn't in the right order, you know, in terms of my priorities and, and just how I thought about uh, life. I knew something was wrong. And so um, for me at the time, that looked like meditation, that looked like a Buddhist practice, that looked like therapy. And um, I would say that, you know, all three of those things have remained key ingredients, but uh, it has really become something that I, I, I work enormously on, yeah. <laughs> just my mental health and, um, you know, just trying to integrate because I feel like, look, queer black kid, of course, I got trauma. I got plenty of trauma. I'm, I'm blessed to be an artist, to have, I, I believe I came into this world knowing that I had to make art in some kind of way. So that's also a blessing. Um, but those things are not going to save me. I have to safeguard those things by being really active in my mental health um, and, and what, in, in what I, I choose to, to prioritize first every day and in my life. Mm, I'm sitting here getting teary-eyed because 
I know the feeling. Like even, you know, after Dear White People, the series ended, I don't know that I even took a second to just relish in the accomplishment of what we did, you know, what we created. I was so concerned just about what was next. Like, it was kind of like, I was like, that was great. Oh my God. Like, but no, like we changed television. We changed lives. We inspired millions of people. Like we created magic and that is worth sitting in, relishing, reminiscing about, taking a second to not worry about what's next and focus on what was and the beauty of that. And I too, I would say I've kind of always been like that in my life, but I think, uh, Dear White People coming to to an end really highlighted that for me. It gave me a lot of anxiety because in a weird way, I felt like, will I do it again? Can I do it again? Mm -hmm. That's the thing. It's still a job. So it feels like, okay, I did that. And I'm really proud of what I did. But I can do it again, right? Please, God, I can do it again, right? That wasn't that wasn't my only shot, you know. Um, and that definitely doesn't it doesn't feel good. And it, and what I'm realizing too is that it's self inflicted. Nobody's doing that to me. Mm. Nobody's saying that to me. No one's saying that about me. I'm the only person saying it about myself. And I just did you know a video on Instagram just talking about the power of your words. And Mm. the intentionality you have to have about what you say, particularly about yourself. Well, the the tricky thing about what both of us do is that our work comes from us in a quite literal fashion. It's not like a it's not like we're creating, you know, robots or, or like making products that are like physically separate from us. Like your literal body is your product. Um. And even though I'm not like an on-camera talent, the same is true for me. Like, it's not a bunch of skills and a bunch of things I know. It's me. Me being there and engaged in the process is how I do my job. And so how do you separate yourself from the project, the process, the thing, the thing that's going to go out into the world and be sold like a can of soup and be evaluated and discarded or praised or whatever? It's just a thing. But I had to put my whole soul into that thing in order to make it. And so on the other side of that, like, how do I separate? How do I um, ritualize? For instance, like specifically with a Netflix show. And I think this is true for anybody, you know, uh, working in the field, especially in the streaming world. There's just not those like beats anymore Let's say you've done it, you know, uh, like if, if you go back to just like traditional theater, you get the applause at the end, you get to bow. There's a you, you get a sense of like people receiving what you're giving them uh, in, in our world. You you sweat and you toil and you make this thing. And even especially during the pandemic, because we didn't have a premiere for Dear White People, the last season of Dear White People. But even with a premiere, it's just like you do all this stuff and then it just goes out and it's just out. It's just out there. Bye. Yeah. Hi. Bye. And, and there's no ritual you have to create your own ritual to be like, oh my gosh, I did that. Mm. And let me see what I've done. And let me, you know, I, I think one of the, my favorite analogies is the idea of like, you really have to learn to put, like fill up the the hole at the bottom of your bucket. That, mm. you know, uh, I think that like, probably like really high achievers, 
you know, kids like us who are just like always hustling, always doing it. Um, part of our drive is that like no amount of praise really seems to fill up our bucket. And that almost feels like a badge of honor that nothing's enough. We're just tenacious. We're going to keep going. I mean, all of our heroes, especially our black heroes are like that, you know, insatiable, just driven, just none of it is enough. Higher, higher, higher. But I think we're at an age where we can learn to actually fill up our buckets and go, wait, that was enough. Mm. And, and let me just take a second to, uh, this is, this is something that like, um, a really great friend of mine kind of walked me through is like, you should really watch your work and be your own audience, write down what you love that you did, write down what you hated that what you did, but really watch your work the way you always long for somebody to watch your work because you're just never going to get it from out there. You're never going to get it. No, no awards you get. No, it's, we're so divorced from the reception of our work in a tangible way. We have to give that to ourselves. We have to give ourselves those rituals of completion and a sense that we have done something so that when we move on to the next thing, we still have all of the gifts and the things that we learned from the last thing. It's not like we're starting over from scratch again. You know, there were plenty of painful lessons that I learned up until this point throughout making Dear White People. Painful lessons that I would rather not think about. But just sitting down and looking at those things alongside the things that I'm really proud of, they actually really helped me to walk into the next room and face yet another set of challenges that I didn't imagine, yet another set of obstacles, yet another set of, uh, you know, power dynamics. I can hit those things a little bit better because I still have the stuff from my last journey in my bucket. Yeah. Not all of it, child. (laughs) We're learning. Okay. But I'm able to carry a bit more with me to each thing than I was before. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Were you able to do that with Dear White People? Sit back, watch uh, over a decade of hard work and dedication and all. Were you able to really do, have you been able to do that yet? No, but it sounded good though, the advice, (laughs) right? It sounded like I had though, right? Justin, like it sounded like I was just like I thought you were gonna be ready, like actually last night. Actually, I- yes. <laughs> I sat down. No, I'll tell you this. I've done it in batches. Like I watched all of Dear White People before we shot season four. Okay. I have not really returned to season four really since like we like locked the sound and stuff before like a few months before it came out. That was the last time I actually like sat to watch it. And at some point I will probably sit down and watch just the series from start to finish, but I haven't been ready to do that just yet. I I think I've just done that with bad hair. Oh, wow. Um, I've been able to do that, Mm. (laughs) but not yet with dear white people. But I love that you, you 
what you said about like, uh, particularly our fourth season, because it was weird. We shot it in a pandemic and then it was like, we just finished shooting it and there was no premiere. There was no rap party. Like we just didn't do the things, the celebratory things that we normally do, that most shows, most people normally do. And I felt that void for a really long time. But then I had to realize who would that, who was it for though? It wasn't for me. If it was for me, I can do that on my own. Exactly what you just said. Mm. I can look at my work. I can look at what we created over those five years and four seasons. And before that, obviously the movie, I can look at that myself and say, job well done, Ashley. Now it's time to go on to the next thing. I don't need a premiere or a rap party to say that. I really don't. And it taught me that. But it would have been nice. I mean, for sure, <laughs> it know, would have been nice. It was so. I, our our last days on the show were so weird yeah. because we were still we were still like walking through like COVID protocols and like, I mean there was just no sense of completion that we were allowed to. I mean we were literally not allowed to do it. You know. Um, you know, for me, the lesson was sometimes it's weird. Yeah, it is. But it's still (laughs) okay. It's still good. It was what it was supposed to be. Like, that. that's what it taught me. I, you know, like you were saying about perfection, I have a need for everything to be perfect. But just because Mm. Daryl and I talk about this a lot, we, maybe we have a tip or something and I feel like the whole weekend is ruined. He's like, it's Mm -hmm. not ruined. We had a tip. Everything's fine. I, I... You know, it's like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can't, you can't do that because then you're, then you're being blind to and cutting yourself off from other experiences that are great because you've decided that it's all, it's all doomed. It's Mm -hmm. all horrible now because we had one disagreement. No. Right. But, but you know, the thing, but the other side of that though, Ash, is that like it, people need to know it takes training. It is not easy to go from a brain I, I, I've been like, uh, I've been really, uh, you know, you know, I love a self-help. Love book. it. You know this love about it. me. And I've been reading this. My latest is this book about um, how to receive feedback. It's called Thanks for the Feedback. Mm. And yes. um, it, one of the many brilliant things that the book points out is that like, we are really good at wrong spotting. And it probably has gotten us to where we are in life, being able to quickly identify and critique all the things that are wrong. Um, so that we can know what to fix, you know, which has a very positive intention, but we're really bad at right spotting. Like we're really bad at it because there's no survival instinct to right spot. You know what I'm saying? To like, look at the situation and go, well, this is what's lovely about it. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't do that. Most people don't do that. That is not a default in anybody's head. And so it's like a bicycle. You really have to train yourself to do it, you know, and to go like, okay. And in, in, in this context, it's like, okay, so you get a note from a studio uh, executive, or in your case, you know, you have an audition and, and the casting director like wants to see something. You're like, what are they talking about? It's like, it's so easy for our brain to immediately go like, here are the million things that are wrong with that. But to then go like, wait, but what's right about that? Even if it's like small and soft, it can be a revelation. It can completely change your perspective on something. So something like a vacation, something like an audition, something like a script note, looking for what's right in it 
you know, it's just a thing you got to teach yourself and it's not easy and it does not happen automatically. Ooh, that is important. Basically looking at like the glass is half full and not half empty. That's basically, that's yeah. basically it. Uh, okay. So one of the first things I remember when I, I we showed the movie in, in Sundance is, you know, white people <laughs> obviously were, some of them were like a little mad about the title, yes. uh, about dear white people. And, uh, you know, I remember there was a lot, I felt really bad about that. Like just so few people like giving it, there, there was just so many people willing to just sort of not give it a chance uh, or sort of just to think past their initial reaction. And then as I went along, I realized like there was something really powerful about that. Our title began to become like a litmus test, um, not of how woke you were, but just what your inherent sort of thoughts about black people were, because people would start to fill in the blank, you know, I, I, most people who were like comfortable and casual with it, they would hear dear white people and go like, ha, ha, ha. but people who were going, oh, my God, clearly they had <laughs> like a bias that needed to be challenged. And those people, when they finally did watch the show, the things I heard from those people <laughs> really touched me and made me feel like, wow, we're really doing something special in the world. And so even though at the time, you know, it felt like I had done something wrong Actually, it was operating exactly as it was meant to operate in the world. And I just couldn't see it at that time. I'm not I'm not good at it. And I certainly was terrible at it at the time of right spotting. Like, what is right about this? Um, and it, it can really help because, like you said, like, you know, otherwise, like, every little scrape and every little nick and every little cut can just completely knock you off course. Right you know? spotting. Right spotting. I'm going to be really intentional about this. Wow, that's good. That's really good. You know, so about the title, actually, quickly, I want to ask you something, Justin, and I'm sure people have asked yeah. you this before, but, you know, there's a lot of talk about our show and people will say, you know, if the title were something else, if it were Winchester, if it were, I don't know, Black Kids in a White Place, I don't know, whatever. If the title weren't Dear White People, Perhaps the show would have done whatever other people think it should have done, even though we know that the show was a was a hit and was a was a really well um, received show. Did you ever consider it? Did you actually ever consider changing the name from Dear White People to something else? Of course. Mm -hmm. And of why course. didn't you? Um well, okay, there's, it's a really complicated, it has become more complicated the older I get. Um, well, for one, it was just, it's the right title. It's the thing that sort of got the most noise about any iteration of it. And it was called other things before, and it got no movement, mm. it got no traction, it got no motion. And so it wasn't really until it had a controversial edge to it that it just began to stick in people's imaginations and then their brains long enough to check out what the thing was really about. So I just experienced in real time the difference in the level of interest from the people who pull the strings in the industry from before it was called Dear White People to when it was called Dear White People. So there's that. I also think about things like, you know, Prince's Dirty Mind album. Yeah, I'm going to go there because, uh, you know, we all love Purple Rain. We all love, you know, 1999. We all love that. Maybe people don't really know about this other album where he just sort of got tired of um, doing the studio thing, chasing these disco hits, chasing Michael Jackson, frankly. And so he put out this album of demos. He's on the uh, black and white on the cover with like a black bikini. This is in the <laughs> 80s. OK, is the black man wearing a bikini in the 80s on his album cover of demos. 
of, of like not refined, just tracks, right, from his soul. People didn't get it, but some people did get it. Mm. Some people did get it. And actually, some of his most successful work comes from that album because some of those songs, you, I Feel For You by Shaka Khan, uh, which was a gigantic hit for her, completely resurrected her career, comes from that album. It's a cover from that album. Uh, when You're Mine is a really great song that Cyndi Lauper does uh, in her breakthrough album. Um, it was an important thing for him to do as an artist. And the people who got it, got it. And that's all who needed to get it at that time. And the people who would come to appreciate the work later owe their appreciation to that work. Um, so I don't care what people think it should have been. The other thing that I also know, which is kind of tragic, it's tragic actually, is at that time, and I think probably still in the industry, the expectation for an upcoming filmmaker of color is, was, still is, that they mine their trauma for their source material. Nobody's looking for the quiet little indie darling drama from a black filmmaker. They want the pain, yeah. <laughs> specifically the racial pain, or they want the queer pain, or they want the, the woman pain. That is this weird, pernicious, insidious aspect of our industry that if you're not a white straight man, you are kind of expected to mine your deepest, most specific, most personal, most um, sordid uh, trauma uh, for your initial work in order to make a splash. And I didn't create that environment. There were plenty of other things that I was writing and thinking about at the time, but that's the one that popped. I'm never a person who's doing one thing at a time. I always have about 17 irons in that fire and the ones that pop are just the ones that pop, you know? And so um, I hear all of that, but I also think it's it's really myopic uh, to think about any sort of breakthrough success for any person of color as simply a matter of that person's choice. Mm. Our choices are just limited. Ooh. They are. There are only a few lanes. At that time, the lanes were broad, broad, like dude in a, in a, in a fat suit broad, comedy or black trauma. Those are the two options. And I decided like, I couldn't really do the slave thing. I didn't really want to do a sad, depressed, moping through the streets thing, but I had a lot to say about race. Yeah, I had a lot to say about my pain and my trauma, but like, what was the most interesting way I could do that? Because I'm not doing the guy in the fat suit thing. Like that's not my thing. Um, and that's where dear white people came from. You know, it's like y'all wouldn't take I sorry to keep hopping metaphors, but, you know, the public isn't going to take a, a rock and roll song from Michael Jackson in 1979. He has to do Shake Your Body to the Ground first mm. before y'all let him do mm. Don't Stop to Getting Up before you let him do The Girl is Mine with Paul McCartney. So it's just like that's that's the nature of the beast. Unfortunately, I think it's really unfortunate because there's a lot of great other stories in me and in other people of color that have nothing to really do with our pain or trauma, but no one's checking and funding those stories. Yeah. They still aren't. And and the thing is, you know, what I'm taking from this is you have to always honor your truth. Like the thing is like nine times out of 10, people will not understand. They won't get it, especially if you're an artist of color. It's going to take an aha moment sometimes later, well after the fact, 
uh, at a time when you've even moved beyond something in order for the the rest of the world to catch up. And uh, it doesn't matter if you trust and you believe in what in what you're doing, you know. And the other thing I'll say about the show is like, I know that it's a show to people and you have certain expectations of a show. But for me, it was always more than a show. It was a showcase Mm. specifically for black talent. It was also a laboratory for me as a filmmaker to experiment because the truth is, is that it was the only job I was getting at that time. And throughout that time, nobody was giving me the musical or the superhero movie or the drama or whatever. So people wonder why the show is so um, has so many genres in it and why it shifts tone every season. Part of that is because I'm a restless artist that wants a chance to show and to do and to try things that I'm not patient enough to wait for the industry to give me. Just not. And if that doesn't make sense to people at the time, all right. But I know my journey. Wow. And I know what I know what I needed to accomplish in that time as an artist. And, and that's what I did. Wow. Wow. That's good. That's the thing. When you have when the when you have the baton in your hand, do whatever you want to do with it for as long as you've got it. And also by making sure you do everything that's in your heart to do, when you pass that baton, it has so much more power for the person that's behind yeah. you. And there's also just as an, yeah, I recognize um because if you just look, look, there's not a there's not a ton of it black success to look back in the past when we are, you know, in Hollywood. I mean, we, there's of course great black directors and great black actors, but the truth is, is that our histories in this field are just not as noted, um, studied, surfaced for us as other histories. But you just look back at, at all black artists in this country. They work with the lanes that they're given and they try to bring something really authentic to it. And sometimes the job is to break ground And sometimes the job is to synthesize the broken ground. When you're breaking ground, that can feel really messy and destructive and chaotic and scary to people, but it's really necessary so that when the next artist comes along, and even if you're that same artist, what you're trying to do is consolidate and make sense of all the broken ground and like sort of bring it all together. Um, Those things like those things really have a shot at popular culture. But the fact is, is that with Dear White People, we were breaking ground. We were experimenting. We were looking for something new. And we were trying to figure out what this new sort of streaming thing was about. We were trying to figure out what this like millennial to Gen Z like approach to race was. We It was a journey. It was a search. It was not like a series of answers. It was a search, that show. And the fact that it became as popular as it as it is, being so experimental to me is a triumph. Mm, mm. Justin, what would you say has been your takeaway from our conversation? Mm. I love you and I miss you. That's the first <laughs> takeaway. Just that like, you know, there's something there's something really beautiful about taking responsibility. Mm. Like even in a world where you don't get to control much <laughs> and where things happen to you all the time, just trying to take responsibility for as much of it as possible. And when I say responsibility, I mean, like, responsibility for your own happiness, for your own, like, track, for your own journey, you know, just doing a little bit to move from, like, it's about them and about what happens on the outside to it's about how I self-reflect about what has happened on the inside. Um, I'm, I'm leaving this conversation 
you know, a, even a little bit more dedicated to, to that process and realizing that that really is helping and changing um, my ability to do my best work uh, in some really trying times. Yeah. Well, my takeaway, Justin, is I too love and miss you dearly. But what I'm I'm leaving with is the reminder of how blessed I am with the people that are in my life. Like mm. to have someone as wonderful and as talented and as giving and just brilliant as you in my life, very close to me in my life, is to me just a reminder that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And that mm. God has put people in my life um, to edify me, to uh, help me, to support me, and that I can do the same in return. And I'm just so grateful that you're one of those people to me and you've always been. And I'm truly also just sitting here like, oh my gosh, where are we going to be in another three years? Like, where yeah. will we be three years from now? Um, and just in advance... Um, giving gratitude for that because I'm really excited about it. Um, Justin, I love you. I honor you. I, I thank love you. you. But most importantly, I have to say, thank you for saying yes the first time and thank you for saying yes this time. And thank you for continuing to always be someone that says yes to me in my life without hesitation. I don't take that for granted. Mm. I really don't. After the credits, the cultural icon who had the biggest impact on how Justin tells Black stories. Stay with us. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by LWC Studios for OWN. The show's executive producer is Juleka Lentigua. This episode was mixed by Kojin Tashiro. Managing producers are Camille Stennis and Paulina Velasco. Assistant producers are Michelle Baker and Shanice Tyndall. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, and we hope you did, please make sure to subscribe, leave a rating, and review wherever you listen to your podcast to ensure you hear the next one. What cultural icon from history had an impact on you? and how you think about and tell Black stories. Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I could sit here and act like there's somebody else. <laughs> As I rewatch uh, Journey from Motown to Off the Wall for the hundredth time. Um, yeah, Michael Jackson. Mm. What was the rest of the question? That Michael Jackson <laughs> is your answer for everything. I would be like, who do you well, think? Well, <laughs> look. The thing about him is that, like, his whole thing was about liberation. And it was about, like, this electric, free, I can do literally anything. I can defy the laws of gravity energy. That's what you got from him when you saw him perform and when you saw him sing. And the fact that that was coming from a Black man that was not adhering to gender norms of the time, as a little queer boy, was the most powerful, impactful thing that I can even think, because it permeated any understanding of why he was, I, I, there was no intellectual stuff going on when I was four or five watching Moonwalker and watching the Thriller video. It just communicated right to my soul. And I think about that all the time. Like, 
What else would have told me that I was okay to be mm. me? Nothing. Nothing. Wow. <laughs> so wow. that's why. That's good. Mm. Thank you, Justin. I love you so much. Thank you. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.